home on uh, Facebook Live. We certainly wish that we could be together with you, uh, but this is the new normal for a little while, and uh, so we'll just continue to pray uh, that God will bless us through this time and that he will uh, give us mercy uh, rather than the justice that we know that we deserve, uh, but we're asking for mercy during this time. Uh, so uh, today we're starting uh, the beginning of Holy Week, and uh, we're going to preach a message today called He Loved Them to the End, uh, which is the foot-washing episode from John chapter 13. And so before we get into the Word, uh, let's go to the Lord and ask Him for help today. Uh, Lord God, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, it, it enables us to endure the difficult times, Lord. The promises contained in Scripture are, are true, and they are right, and they are just, and we rely on them like we rely on air to breathe, Lord. And so we thank you that even though we're in the midst of these troubling times, uh, that we know that you are our rock, we know that you are there, you know that you have not left us, nor have you forsaken us, Lord. And so we pray uh, today uh, that you will accomplish your purposes uh, through this virus and that you will lift this plague from us, Lord. And Lord, we pray uh, that Christ is glorified today. We pray that your Holy Spirit come now and assist us, help us to uh, get what you would like to us to have from the word today, Lord. We pray that you bless us. We lift up Diana, Lord, uh, as she uh, is uh, struggling with end-of-life issues, Lord, and, and we just pray for your mercy on her, uh, David, Taryn. Uh, Lord, help us to come alongside as best we can and to love them well. Lord, we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, David Brainerd was uh, uh, born in Connecticut in 1718, uh, and he was converted to Christianity at age 21, and he became a missionary to the American Indians. Uh, and as a young man, he contracted tuberculosis, and he died at only 29 years of age. Uh, but he left behind a journal uh, of his missionary successes and failures while he was uh, being a missionary to these American Indians, uh, just uh, documenting what happened. And amazingly, one week before he died, he was on his deathbed, he had a week to live, and this is the last entry that he wrote uh, in his journal. Uh, this is what David Brainerd said. He said, Would my soul this day be sweetly set on God? I longed to be with him that I might behold his glory, I felt sweetly disposed to commit all to him, even my dearest friends, my dearest flock, my absent brother, and all my concerns for time and eternity. Oh, that his kingdom might come in the world, that they might all love and glorify him for what he is in himself, and that the blessed Redeemer might see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Isn't that an amazing thing to write on your deathbed with a week left to live, uh, not complaining about his circumstances, I'm sure, d dying of tuberculosis, he was uh, not feeling so well, and yet these are his final words. He didn't focus on himself, he focused on his Savior, he focused on the glory of Jesus, he prayed earnestly for his friends and his family that they might glorify Jesus all the more, and he prayed for Christ's imminent return. You know, he took his last breath in the home of his very good friend, Jonathan Edwards, and he died in Jonathan Edwards' home, and uh, Jonathan Edwards is the one who published his diary later on so that we have it. 
Uh, but uh, David Brainerd modeled Christian love and he modeled Christian service. Uh, the Lord got a hold of him and did amazing things through him uh, and through his missionary work. And so David Brainerd, even to the end, uh, loved the people that he was sent to minister to. Well, as you know, uh, this is Palm Sunday, and this marks the beginning of Holy Week, uh, Christ's Passion Week. Uh, passio is the Latin word for suffering, which is why we call this week Passion Week from the Latin word. Uh, and so Jesus Christ had less than a week to live on earth. Uh, the week began on Sunday when Jesus uh, had his triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem, uh, and by Friday he was killed, and by the following Sunday, of course, he was raised again. Uh, it's called Palm Sunday because uh, when he entered Jerusalem on uh, that cult, they were waving palm branches at Jesus, which was uh, a sign uh, that, that uh, they did for welcoming uh, and conquering heroes. So Jesus was being welcomed into Jerusalem uh, with these waving of palm branches. And so uh, I thought that today uh, we would focus on this one particular episode uh, during Jesus' Holy Week because uh, our world now is... You know, we're, we're, we've, we've, we're part of a strange new world, right? The, the world has changed, uh, and so many people are afraid. They fear the coronavirus and what might happen to them. And I want us to be thinking about how we can love and serve others like Jesus loved and served others, even uh, in his own time of personal crisis. Uh, he came into Jerusalem on that Sunday knowing full well that he would be hanging on a cross in less than a week. And what does Jesus do? He's not thinking about himself like David Brainerd wasn't thinking about himself. He was modeling love and service to the people that he came to love and serve. And so as he prepared to go to, to, go to the cross himself, uh, he serves others by washing their feet. Uh, and other than the cross, that may, may be the place where he modeled love and service more than any other place uh, when you think about foot washing is. So let's just take a minute to get some context for uh, when this happened during uh, Holy Week, this foot washing event. Uh, the foot washing event happened on Thursday night, uh, so that would have been uh, during the Last Supper. But as I said, Jesus had already been in Jerusalem since Sunday, since the triumphal entry, and lots of things had happened since then. Uh, he answered uh, several of the accusations from the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, by then, and he had called the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites because uh, they were inaccurately teaching the Word of God, and then he pronounced eight woes on them, and that probably happened on Monday as well. Uh, Mary had anointed Jesus' feet uh, already, which probably happened on Monday also. And then when Judas criticized Mary for it, uh, Jesus rebuked Judas. And that may have been the last straw for Judas, who finally decided, I am fed up with this. I'm tired of waiting for the kingdom to be ushered in. I'm going to make something happen. And that's when he went out and betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Well, Jesus had predicted his own death uh, and crucifixion uh, to his apostles. That probably happened on Tuesday, and then the rulers began preparing uh, for how they were going to trap him and how they were going to kill him, and that was happening on Tuesday and into Wednesday. Uh, on Thursday afternoon, Jesus sent his disciples ahead of him into the village and said, go and get a colt for me, uh, or, or go and I'm sorry, go and prepare a Passover for me uh, in a large upper room uh, that you will be shown. And then that night, Jesus' last night on earth before he would be crucified the next day, he had the Last Supper with his apostles. 
And Jesus knew that the scribes and Pharisees uh, were plotting against him. And he knew that, Jesus was about, uh, that Judas was about to betray him. And he knew that Peter was going to deny him three times in the coming hours. And he knew that he would be crucified the next day. And so all of that context makes what Jesus was about to do for these apostles so much more extraordinary that knowing what was going to happen, all that was going to happen, Jesus engages in the most menial and humble act of service for others, not looking to be ministered to, but looking to minister to others in his final hours. So knowing that he would suffer and die tomorrow, uh, Jesus modeled perfect love. Let's read John chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil already having put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper. And laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. And then he poured water into the basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he had girded. What we see in the very beginning of the passage is that Jesus knew everything that was about to happen to him. Uh, he knew his hour had come. And throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus saying to people, My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But here, at this time, Jesus says, my hour has come. Uh, Jesus knew that now was the time that he would have to fulfill uh, what he came to do. Uh, and he knew that he was leaving the world, and he knew that he was going back to the Father, and he knew that evil men were going to put him to death uh, in just a few hours. And in fact, he even knew that one of those evil men was in the room with him, as Judas was there, and he was soon to leave to betray him. But Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Uh, the NIV says that he loved them to the full extent. Uh, what does that phrase mean, he loved them to the end, to the full extent? Uh, John 15, 13 says that greater love has no one than this, that, uh, a, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus certainly was referring to the work that he would do on the cross the next day. Uh, but it also uh, tends to uh, show how we're supposed to love and serve each other while we are alive, too. He loved them not only in his death, but also in his service to them. And so knowing that he would be betrayed, that he would be denied, that he would be abandoned by all of his very best friends in the world, he still humbled himself and took on the role of a servant. Now, Foot washing was a necessity in the ancient world. Uh, they didn't have closed-toed shoes and paved sidewalks like we have, right? They walked around in sandals, in dirt, in mud. Their feet were gross and disgusting. And so whenever they wanted to enter into the house of a friend or something like that, it was necessary for them to wash their feet so they didn't get their mud all over their friend's house. And so who was going to wash their feet? Well, in the ancient world, there was always a servant who would perform this menial task. Never would a peer, uh, somebody's peer, dream of washing another peer's feet. That would be unheard of. In the Greek world, the Roman world, even in Israel, peers didn't wash other peers' feet. Uh, that was a job left to servants. 
And you know that the apostles argued amongst themselves all the time, right? Which one of us is the greatest? No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. And Jesus always had to put those arguments down. But none of those apostles would ever argue that they were greater than Jesus, right? Jesus was certainly greater than any of the apostles. They wouldn't dream of making such an argument. And so uh, imagine they're shocked then as Jesus gets up and starts to perform a task that uh, was to them, uh, they wouldn't do for each other, let alone imagine somebody greater than them doing. Because he said later in the passage, he says, you call me teacher, you call me Lord, and rightly so. So uh, everybody knew their position. Uh, Jesus was well above them. They were well beneath him. And so uh, it's astounding that he would do such a thing. Uh, So as this is about to happen, just think about it like you were sitting at the table. You're sitting there at the table and you're watching Jesus and he starts to, uh, he gets up from the table and he takes off his robe and then he starts to uh, gird up his undergarments uh, to perform this menial task. And and just think about it, like how long would it take to do that? Maybe 30 seconds to take off his robe and maybe put his garments uh, inside uh, so that he was uh, able to get ready to perform this task. And then how long would it take him to fill the basin with water so that he would be prepared to do this foot washing? Maybe another minute, maybe another two minutes, uh, I don't know. Uh, And then start to carry this basin over toward uh, the the first person whose feet he was going to wash. How long would all that take? A couple minutes maybe. And maybe as you're sitting there and you're watching this, you're thinking, what is he doing? What is Jesus about to do here? Is he going to wash our feet? Like, no way he's going to wash our feet. That is a job reserved for a slave. And so his disciples, I don't know how long it took them to realize, I think he's going to wash our feet. And that would be just absolutely astounding to them. They would be staring at him in disbelief that one greater than them would stoop to wash their feet. It'd be like Imagine you're invited to a banquet at Queen Elizabeth's house at Buckingham Palace and she gets up and she walks over to you and she washes your feet. Can you imagine that? That is kind of the same idea that they would have. That's how they would perceive this. So we don't know exactly in what order Jesus washed the disciples' feet. It doesn't say that. But this is how people uh, sat at the table in ancient Israel. This is called reclining at table. If you see that phrase in the Bible, this is what it means. They would all lean over, head towards the table, leaned on their left elbow, uh, scattered around the table like that. So when you see uh, Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper, no, that's not what it was like. This is what it was like. This is how they reclined at table. And so If we read the Gospels, what we understand is that John was probably right next to Jesus on one side of him because we're told that John leaned back or that Jesus leaned back into John's bosom at one point during the Last Supper. And we are also told that Jesus handed Judas a morsel of bread during the Last Supper. So he must have been very close to him also, perhaps even on the right side of him. And so this is speculation to some degree. But it is probably so that John is immediately to Jesus' left behind him uh, there at the head of the table, and Judas is immediately to his right at the place of honor at the table at the Last Supper. Is that astounding that Judas would be given that place of honor when Jesus knew that he was a traitor soon to walk out of the room and betray him? Now, Jesus may have washed the disciples' feet in the order of seating. We're not told. All we're told is that 
uh, is of the discussion that he had with Peter. So maybe he washed Peter's feet first, or maybe it is that uh, John only recorded the conversation with Peter because, as usual, Peter was the spokesperson for the group. And so what we see uh, is that in verses 1 to 5, uh, Jesus modeled perfect love, and now in verses 6 to 11, as he does this foot washing, he's going to explain perfect love. <clears throat> so Jesus came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, wash not only my feet, but wash my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are all clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So Peter expresses the disbelief of the entire group, saying, uh, never shall you wash my feet, Lord. And just think about Peter's tone as he asked the question, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? I mean, one thing you can say about Peter, for all the times he put his foot in his mouth, uh, he does understand that he should not have his feet washed by Jesus. Uh, Jesus said, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you'll understand it later. Uh, think about how hard it would be in that moment for Peter to begin to understand what was going on here, uh, that Jesus was not just talking about foot washing, but he was talking about his death and his resurrection too. And we, of course, have the benefit of hindsight. We know what happened. We have the New Testament. But Peter is looking at this thing before it has happened yet. And so uh, he and his disciples and Jesus' disciples would have been overwhelmed by what was going on here. But Peter, of course, was always the brash one. He was the always, always the one who was speaking out first, right? Remember at Caesarea Philippi, uh, he rebuked the Lord for saying that he was going to go to Jerusalem and he was going to be killed. Uh, remember when uh, the transfiguration happened, uh, Peter didn't know what to say, so he started babbling, saying, Lord, uh, let me build a tabernacle, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Uh, remember that uh, just after this incident at the Last Supper, uh, Jesus was, would tell Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will never betray you. And so here, uh, just the same. He is always the one to speak up. He says, never, Lord, shall you wash my feet. And so uh, Peter recognized, though, uh, saying at least he said uh, he knew that if anybody was going to be washing anybody's feet, it should be Peter washing uh, Jesus's feet. But just like at Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus had to rebuke Peter, he had to do it here too. But I just imagine him doing it so lovingly. I imagine him with a little smile on his face, shaking his head, saying, Peter, 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 you're always speaking, you're never thinking. It's my program, it's not your program. Uh, let me lead, you follow. I can just imagine a, a conversation like that because this would not have been the first time where Jesus had to rebuke Peter uh, like that. But he did it so gently too. He said, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. And then it's a credit to Peter that he says, well, then, you know, dunk me whole, right? I want to be washed fully so that I may be fully immersed with you. Uh, so he wanted Jesus not just to wash his feet, but to wash his whole body. But Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. 
And so there is a spiritual metaphor going on here that Peter would not have caught uh, at the time, or maybe he would have, maybe I'm not giving him enough credit, but Jesus said, you'll understand later. I think there's a, a lot here that Peter did not understand. Uh, this word that is translated bathed is the Greek word luo, and it means to be bathed or completely cleaned and also has a sense of, in a purification kind of way, so not just washing for, this, for the sense of being clean, but also being spiritually purified. And then there's this word wash, uh, that's a different Greek word. It's the word nipto, which means to rinse dirt off. So you have this, uh, this first word, luo, that has the spiritual sense to it, and then the word nipto that doesn't have that sense. It just means a cleaning. So Peter might not have gotten the spiritual meaning that Jesus was trying to explain here at the time, uh, but they would understand it later. Uh, Jesus was not only talking about physical cleansing. He was talking about spiritual cleansing as well. And it's not just the foot washing is for a cleansing that happens after the whole body has been washed. So there's this spiritual dimension to foot washing that is going on here. Uh, and so after Jesus was killed, uh, they understood, and as Jesus was trying to explain to them, that the foot washing uh, is an example of what they're supposed to do for each other, but it's also a metaphor for salvation. And so when the sinner trusts Jesus as his Savior, he is bathed all over. He is completely clean. He is washed. And it's a once and for all thing that he has to do. He has to be bathed this one time. His sins are forever washed away and forgiven. And so this first once and for all initial bathed all over is a one-time act that Jesus does when we come and accept him as our Lord and Savior. But a believer is still going to sin from time to time. We will sin after we have been saved. And we don't need to be bathed all over again. That's a one-time event. It happens once for all time. And our salvation is sealed and it is secure. But God promises to cleanse us of ongoing sin when we confess our sins to him. Uh, you know the first John uh, verse where it says that uh, when we uh, confess our sins to him, he is faithful uh, to, uh, to uh, forgive us. And it's, it's the, con the, the confessing of our sin is not for salvation. That salvation is all complete, but it's for an unhindered walk with him. Uh, James says that uh, keeping communion with Christ depends on our keeping ourselves unspotted uh, from the world. And so that's why we confess our sins to God so that he will cleanse them after our salvation. Peter had already received, received the initial cleansing. Uh, he believed in Jesus. He was clean, but not all of them were clean. Remember that Judas was still there. He was still in the room. He had not left yet to do the betraying. Uh, and he wasn't going to do that until after the foot washing and after uh, the table. And so Judas had watched and heard everything that the apostles had watched and heard for three years. But they believed they had been bathed all over. And he did not believe he had not been bathed all over. That's why he was not clean. He had never placed his faith in Jesus and received uh, salvation. He was probably just riding Jesus's coattails, uh, thinking that when Jesus, the Messiah, comes and he overthrows Rome and, and he establishes his kingdom on earth, well, I'll be sitting right there, able to get a seat in his cabinet. He was selfish. He was doing it for what was in it for him. And he never truly understood what the Lord's mission was. And so Judas thought, well, 
If he's not going to move, I'm going to do something to make him move. And so he wants to go out and betray him, thinking that I'm going to force Jesus' hand. If he won't start this revolution, I'm going to make him start this revolution, because surely he won't allow himself to be crucified by Rome. He'll have to start the revolution on my timetable rather than his. And it just goes to show when we get out ahead of God uh, that bad things happen. We have to allow God to work on his timetable. So Judas never understood Jesus' mission. And he could be forgiven for that, of course, right? Uh, None of the other apostles understood Jesus' mission either. They were all asking, even after Jesus was resurrected in Acts, they they said to Jesus, is it now that you are going to restore the kingdom? And Jesus said, it is not for you to know the times, but it is for you to go out and be my witnesses. Uh, So they never understood his mission. But that doesn't mean they hadn't claimed him as their Lord. They had, uh, but Judas never did. And so they were clean. Judas was not. And if I could just make a side point here, I want you to see here that rituals don't save. Uh, Even if they're performed by Jesus himself, right, the ritual doesn't save because Judas wasn't saved by the foot washing. So we have to be sure we're not relying on any ritual or anything that we think that we have done for our salvation. Like take your baptism, for example. Your baptism did not save you. You are saved by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins and that he rose from the dead. And in that you have eternal life, not in any ritual, even if performed by Jesus himself. So Jesus loved Judas, even though he knew what Judas was about to do. Judas was about to go out the door and he was going to betray Jesus to the people who were going to kill him. And that betrayal was going to set into motion the very events that were going to land Jesus on the cross the next day. And what does Jesus do? He washes Judas's feet anyway. Now, other than going to the cross, could there be any act of love more astounding than that, that he could do that for a man who was going to betray him? Jesus gave Judas every opportunity to come to Jesus and to receive uh, eternal life through faith in him, uh, but he refused to do it. But Jesus loved Judas even to the end. So Jesus modeled perfect love. He explained perfect love. And now to his disciples, he's going to encourage perfect love in verses 12 to 17. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, He said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you, if you do them. So Jesus washed all of the disciples' feet. How long would that take? Maybe two to three minutes per disciple to move the basin, uh, wash the feet, rinse the feet, dry the feet. Maybe two to three minutes per disciple, 12 disciples. That's about a half hour or so. And then he gets up and he goes back to the head of the table where he was. And imagine the disciples for 30 minutes sitting there in stunned silence as he moves from one set of feet to the next, washing everybody's feet, performing the most menial task that there was, a task that they would never dream of doing for each other. And then he said to them, do you know what I have done for you? Now, he's not asking them to say, yes, Lord, we know that you have washed our feet. That's not what he was saying. It's not 
what he did, but the significance of what he did. Not, not what he did, but why he did it. That's what he's asking. If Jesus, their teacher and their Lord, washed their feet, well, they should wash each other's feet. And I can just imagine these 12 smelly, dirty guys sitting around the table from each other thinking, there is no way I am washing that guy's feet. There is no way I'm doing it. I can just see these prideful guys not able to do it, just being appalled at the thought. But Jesus said that he did this as an example to them, that they should do as he did. And these guys are peers with each other, right? Jesus is greater than them. So by implication, they should not only wash each other's feet, but they should wash even the feet of those who are socially inferior to them, which would be unthinkable to them in their society. Well, that's what they were supposed to do. It's an example. And does Jesus mean that they should only wash, their, wash each other's feet one time only, just like Jesus did? Was Jesus saying, I've done this for you once, now you do it to each other once? No. Uh, they, actually, the Greek word for example there, I've done this as an example for you, means pattern. A pattern is the idea of repeated behavior. So uh, when the police are looking for a criminal, uh, what do they look for? They look for repeated patterns, things that they do over and over again. Those are the kinds of clues that they use to track down a criminal. Uh, to use a more positive example, uh, if you think of the song, they will know we are Christians by our love. That's not just a one-time act of love that they'll know our, our, that we are Christians by. The world isn't going to notice one act of love. The world notices repeated acts of love that are a pattern, that, that are reliable, that can be counted on because uh, that's what a Christian does. Uh, think about Mother Teresa. She was known for years and years of repeated service over and over again every day in the streets of Calcutta ministering to the poor and the hungry. Uh, that became the pattern of her life so much that her very identity was service to the poor. That's what Jesus was talking about. Not a one-time act, but a repeated pattern of love and service to others. And do you think that Jesus was actually referring only to foot washing? Of course not. There's a reason that Jesus chose to wash feet. It's the most menial thing that, that he could do. It's the greatest act of service that he could do, which means that if he would do the, the, the lowest thing, then everything else is included as well. If he would perform this most humble act, then any act of service is included. Now, as he's doing this, I just want you to think about the stress that Jesus was under. In a few minutes, Jesus would, uh, Judas would walk out the door and he would go to betray him. In a couple hours, uh, he would be arrested. He would be beaten, scourged, mocked, spit on, a crown of thorns forced onto his head. The next morning, he would be tried over and over again and he would be hanging on a cross the next day. And yet he spent these last hours with his disciples imparting wisdom, teaching them how to love and how to lead others, even in the face of this stress that he was under. Now, everyone, you and I, we all have stress in our lives, especially now, right? The coronavirus has threatened our health, it's threatened our lives, it's threatened our economic stability. Almost overnight, the world has changed and it's upside down. And we all had plenty of stress before the coronavirus. We didn't need the coronavirus added to the stress we already had. But 
no matter what happens with the coronavirus, no matter whether we're infected with it, if we die from it, none of us has experienced the stress that Jesus was under that night, and none of us ever will, because aside from the physical pain uh, and torture that Jesus was about to endure, he had to face the spiritual agony of being separated from his Father for the first time in all of eternity. And that is something that you and I just will never know. Uh, his agony was beyond measure. In fact, it was so severe that he sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Luke's Gospel records. And so even in that stress, even in his hour of greatest need, when his disciples couldn't even stay awake with him for one hour uh, just as he was in the garden praying, Jesus still served others. Now Jesus said, blessed are you if you do these things. If you know these things and if you do them, you are blessed. The, the word blessed is the Greek word makarios, and it can be translated blessed, it can be translated happy. Uh, the world thinks that blessedness, happiness, comes from uh, us serving ourselves or others serving us. But Jesus showed us another way. He showed us that the way to happiness is by us going out and serving others, by serving others, uh, even though we have stress and even though we're in a time of need, we go out and we love and serve others anyway. So we would ask then, how do we do it? Uh, what is required to model Jesus's service to the world? Well, the first thing it takes for sure is humility. Uh, Jesus showed incredible humility in humbling himself and bowing down and washing these disciples' feet. Humility means not that we think less about ourselves, but that we think about ourselves less. Do you get that distinction? We, we just don't think about ourselves. It's not that we put ourselves down. That's not humility. Uh, because we're still thinking about ourselves. We're just trying to act pious by putting ourselves down. We just don't think about ourselves at all. We just go out and do what is needed to be done. But to do it, we have to put our needs and our wants aside to serve someone else. Now, I confess, and I imagine you would confess too, uh, I'm a selfish person. I don't necessarily want to serve people 24-7. I like to have my own creature comforts, and, and I like to have myself taken care of too, to a certain degree. And I certainly don't want to wash anybody's feet. So I understand uh, when, when we're talking about the, the, what we need, the, this humility that we need, this, this idea that we have to put our side, put, think less of our, about ourselves and do what other people need uh, is, is something that is hard for us because our pride tells us that there are jobs beneath us, that, that there are things that we uh, don't have to do because that act of service is beneath us. Uh, but Jesus shows us that there is no act of service beneath us because if he's willing to wash feet, well, there's nothing that you and I can be exempted from. So uh, think about our own church, stacking chairs, cleaning up. Uh, these are not spiritual gifts, right? Anybody can do these things. We just have to be willing to humble ourselves to do them, to take the focus off of ourselves, what we want, what we think we need in a given moment, uh, and, to, and to just do what is needed out of humility. And that's why Jesus washed feet, to show that nobody is exempted from these acts of service. Uh, we have to clothe ourselves in humility, swallow our pride, and be willing to do whatever it takes to love and serve others. So we have to have this spirit of humility. And the second thing we have to have is desire. We have to care, you know? We have to care about other people. We have to uh, love people, care for them, and then want to serve them. Um, 
there are times uh, when we're eager to serve, and then there are other times where we just don't feel like serving. Uh, I've had this idea in my mind for years now to write a book called I Want to Want to, which means there are a lot of things that I know I should want to do, but I don't want to do them. Uh, and I want to write a book It's talking about all these things and how I can gain the power through the Holy Spirit to want to do these things. It would be uh, all the things that I'm supposed to want to do as a Christian, but I just, for some reason, I don't want to do them even though I'm supposed to want to do them, but I want to want to do them even though I don't actually want to do them. So uh, we have to ask for the Lord to help us with that, to give us the desire that we need uh, to meet the needs of others. And for us, uh, we want to love people as much as he does. And, and so it might be easy for us to sit on the couch or, or to say, you know, Lord, I've done A, B, C, and D for you today. That's enough for today or for this week or for this year. Uh, the Christian life is a life of service every day until we die. We continue to love and we continue to serve others. And we can say that we love other people, but they won't know it unless we show them by acts of love and acts of service. And so we see that love produces acts of love. But it works the other way too. Did you know that? Even acts of love, even to people we don't love, that can produce love too. It's easy to love lovable people, right? And it's, it's easier to serve people that we like. They're the low-hanging fruit. But it's much harder to serve people that we don't like and people who don't like us, people who have wronged us, people we've had a fight with or in some kind of conflict with. It's hard to serve those people. But once we start to serve people like that, uh, even when they don't like us and the feeling is mutual, well, then the walls of hostility start to break down. And it's hard for us to make the first move when we're in conflict with somebody else because we just can't get ourselves to do it. We're, we're not humble enough. We, we, we want to do it maybe, but we're just not able to make that first move. But we can do it if we desire to love people like Christ loved them. He willingly came. That means he wanted to come. For the joy set before him, he went to the cross. That's incredible that he wanted to do it. He didn't want to do it in the moment, right? I mean, he knew it was going to be not a lot of fun, but he had the long view in mind, right? He wanted to do it knowing how it would result. And so that's what I mean by desire. He wanted to do it knowing the good that would come from it. So I want us to ask God for the desire to love and serve others, even the unlovable. And I think that we'll find over time that even in serving people we don't love, uh, that we will come to love them more and more. Well, the two things I've just said that we need, humility and desire, are absolutely impossible, right? We cannot have this kind of humility and desire because it's not natural to our human condition. So what we need above these two things are the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to have the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no way that we can love people and serve them from humility unless the Holy Spirit is working within us to enable us we are so selfish. We are so self-absorbed. We don't have the power in ourselves to lay down our needs and sacrifice our needs for the service of others. It's only by walking in step with the Holy Spirit, by uh, being submitted to the Holy Spirit's will, to being empowered by the Holy Spirit and surrendered to what he will have for us that we can love and serve like Jesus did. Think about Jesus washing Judas's feet. Knowing that Judas was going to go out and betray him, if he were just a man, he would be sick to his stomach sitting there washing Judas's feet 
uh, knowing that Judas was a traitor. But in his deity, completely surrendered to the will of God, he was able to not only wash Judas's feet, but to go to the cross for him the next day. That is astounding. And so it's not that Jesus didn't do for Judas what he did for the rest. It was Judas's fault that he never received the Holy Spirit by faith. The Holy Spirit lives inside of every believer. So my question is, have you been bathed all over? Have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you'd have, then you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and his power is available to you. You know, we each make hundreds of choices every single day about whether we're going to serve ourselves or whether we're going to serve someone else. And those choices show whether we are submitted to the Holy Spirit's will or whether we are enslaved to our own will. And if we're surrendered to the Holy Spirit's will, as Jesus was surrendered to God, we will find that we can love and serve people well. So today, I'm not asking us to go door to door with a uh, basin full of water looking to wash people's feet. That would not be advisable in this current climate. Uh, But what I am asking is for all of us to pray that we would have more of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, empowering us, filling us to give us the humility to love and serve others as Jesus loved and served us by dying on the cross for our sins. Let's pray. Lord God, this foot washing incident, Lord, the sacrifice that Jesus made, not only on the cross, but then to go so low as to wash the feet of the disciples, it's just the most amazing thing, Lord. Aside from the cross, I can't think of a more more astounding act of service and humility and love, Lord. Lord, we need the Holy Spirit to fill us every day in order for us to be able to love and serve like this. Lord, uh, during this time of the coronavirus, there are a whole bunch of people out there who need love and need service. Lord, help us to be attuned to their needs. Help us to look for opportunities to love and serve others. Lord, help us to be your hands and feet. Help us to not only care about our own needs, but help us to be surrendered to the Holy Spirit's will so that we might love and serve others well, Lord. And we pray these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. In his name we ask it. Amen.